0: pray. Father in heaven, thank you for another day that you have blessed us with, another opportunity of life and health and of being here together as a church family, a body to worship together and to serve you. Bless Lester as he brings what you have laid in his heart, that um, our hearts can be drawn to you and toward each other as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Greetings to each one of you this morning and welcome. I'm going to be turning this morning again to the book of Galatians. I've been preaching from here for, uh, this will be the the fifth sermon and the final one. I have um, enjoyed this study. It's a little bit of a a stretch for me to spend this much time in... um, expository preaching and studying of God's Word, but I um, feel like I have benefited from it, and I hope that that you have too. Certainly, I I know the book of Galatians quite a bit better than I have in the past, just having spent this much time uh, reading it and studying it. So I invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verse 16 through um, chapter 6 today. Um, as you may be aware, my, my series of preaching here is, is about the pure gospel. That's kind of the, the overarching theme in here. And looking at different parts of this and looking at what, what is that pure gospel. Paul's uh, reason for writing this letter to the Galatians was to address a problem he saw happening there where there was other teachers coming in and bringing a different gospel, a a perverted gospel, he called it. Uh, A message that was different than the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is emphasizing to them what the pure gospel really is and warning them about those false teachers and the message that they are bringing. Paul confronted them with a passion and a fervor, um, seeing the mistake that they were making, in following another gospel, and we, we see that especially in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the gospel of Christ to, to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. We looked uh, last time at the pure gospel being freedom from the bondage of the law, liberty in Christ, and a faith that works. So a lot of this book has been Paul talking about our faith in Christ, and that it it emphasizing that it's not works; it's not the things that that um, the outward things that we do, and in particular, the issue that they were dealing with was whether or not circumcision was required for believers. So saying uh, it, it's, it's not that. It's you have a liberty in Christ. But, but then he also moves now into what some of the works are that our lives are to be producing. So he doesn't conflict with what James teaches when James says that faith without works is dead. Yes, it must be based upon our faith in Jesus Christ, our relationship with him. Uh, without that, we are eternally lost and have no hope. But there is also a place for works in the life of the Christian. So we're going to look at a little bit more of that today as well. He concluded, um, the, in my last sermon here, I concluded with the previous section there of chapter 5, where seeing the, recognizing the danger of the flesh, he um, calls us to liberty, but not to use that liberty as an occasion to serve that flesh. We're looking now in chapter 5, verses 16 to the end at the answer to the problem of sinful flesh. Now, when he uses the word flesh here, I think we understand this, but he's referring to the sin nature within us, our, our human desire and passion to sin, to do what God says is wrong, to, to um, turn away from God's instructions, and to do what we feel like doing. That's what he refers, what he's meaning when he talks about the flesh. I'm going to read um, section verses 16 through 25. So I've kind of divided this up into four different sections today. And so I'll read one passage and and make some comments and and try to explain it and then move on to the next one. So verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now this is, this is in response to what we were previously looking at, because he says, I say then. In response to that, that question that he realizes is going to come up. Well, if I'm free, does that mean I am free to sin, to live how I want to, and just, just every time I sin, to call again upon God's grace? Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, rivalries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law." And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. I'll stop there and um, seek to explain a few things in this passage. So he's giving the answer to the problem of sinful flesh. And that is to walk in the Spirit. Now. We were studying the Spirit in our discipleship class this morning as well. That The chapter we were in was um, focused on the Holy Spirit and His work. So you're getting a, a double dose, some of you. Um, but to walk in the Spirit, notice there's three different phrases he uses here that all are really referring to the same thing, some different variations of the same thing. We're to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, and to live in the Spirit. It's also described in, in um, 1 John and, and in the book of John as abiding in Christ. In 1 John 4.13, which you studied in Sunday school, um, somebody should... Quote that real quickly, since you were just reading it. But I have to turn there. So, First John 4:13. This by this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us, has given us of His Spirit. And First John 15 is where He talks about abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ, like using the comparison of a of a branch being attached to a vine, and and it producing fruit. So to walk in the Spirit, the answer to the problem of sinful flesh is to abide in Christ, to live, to walk with Him, to allow Him to, to lead us, to follow Him, and, and to live with Him. It's imperative that we believe in the Spirit and open our hearts to Him. In John chapter 3, Jesus had that conversation with Nicodemus and he told him he needs to be born again, and Nicodemus is confused, wondering how that is possible. Jesus explains to him that it's, being, that it's spiritual, in the spiritual sense, we are born again. This is what it means to believe in God, in his spirit, to accept him, and to invite him into your life. We must believe that there is a spirit, that God will give us that spirit if we ask him to, and then we need to live and walk in that spirit if we are to overcome the problem of sinful flesh. He tells us in verse 17 that the flesh and the spirit are contrary to one another, that they are at war with each other. This is an ongoing battle that, that, is, um, that, takes, that is happening in our world today and has been ever since, since, the, the, since Lucifer uh, rebelled against God since Satan turned against, um, yeah, turned against him and then tempted man and woman to sin, led them into sin. And ever since then, the flesh and the spirit have been at war with each other. So as long as we live in this world, as long as we have this flesh, this body, um, this human body, we're going to be dealing with that conflict. Sin is... To simplify it is selfishness. It's wanting my own way, which is what the devil wanted. So therefore, sin is rebellion against God, or selfishness is rebellion against God. Because we live in this body, we continue to battle that sin. In verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And it's interesting to think about what he's saying there, because the same God who has promised to give us his spirit is the same God who also gave the law. They're not um, in conflict with each other, but as he explained earlier, and I spent some time in earlier in this book, the law was there for a purpose. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, he says. But when, when um, faith came, In chapter 3, verse 25, after faith came, we are no longer under that tutor. The same God who gave the law also gave the Spirit. And now that the Spirit has come, through Jesus Christ coming, and, and then Him ascending into heaven again, leaving us His Spirit, now we are no longer under the law. Now we can live victoriously, we can live righteously, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the presence of His Spirit in our lives. He then goes on to give a description of what the flesh looks like and what the Spirit looks like. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on on those things. I think we we understand what he means there. He gives a lot of um, sins that he lists there. And and he says, and the like. So it's not a... um, this list could go on is basically what he's saying. Things like this are the works of the flesh. And then he gives us the fruit of the Spirit. And, and we're probably fairly familiar with that. That's, that's a, a passage of Scripture we often refer to, and it's a good, um, a good way to, to examine ourselves and to grade ourselves and how, how filled are we with the Spirit? How much is that Spirit evident in our life? By looking at this list, and are these things displayed in my life? In verse 24 then, he says, Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So these sinful desires to do what feels good to me, or what, is, what, is, what I feel like doing rather than what is good for others, and the desire to do what God condemns rather than what he says is good. That, these are the desires of the flesh. That he says here that we are to crucify. So there's a term that comes to mind when I, when I ponder on this, and that is that of personal cross bearing. So this is taught a number of places in Scripture that we are to crucify ourselves or, or bear the cross. Um, one is in Romans chapter 6. Um, there it talks about our old man being crucified with him, with Jesus Christ on the cross. Our old man is also crucified. Um, earlier in Galatians here in chapter 2, it says, I have, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. In Matthew 16, verse 24, he tells us that we are to uh, take up our cross and follow Christ. So all these are talking about this personal cross-bearing. While the the death of a perfect and sinless Christ was indeed the only and the all-sufficient sacrifice needed to save us from the condemnation of sin, we are now to live in Christ, just as Christ rose from the dead in his life, we are to live in him and die to sin. Therefore, we must be the executioner who takes up the cross and crucifies any of the remaining sin so that it will not have dominion over us. Personal cross-bearing is not taking the place of what Christ did on the cross. It's a result of what he did. Because he put to death sin and, and he took away that condemnation that we are under because we have sinned and because he arose again conquering the power of sin and is alive again, then also we are dead in him our old man is dead in him, and we are alive with him again. Uh, we, could, we could spend time in, in Romans chapter 6. He does, Paul expounds on that there and explains it in, in even greater detail than here. That whole thing of, of dying with Christ, of crucifying ourselves. So in a sense, we become an executioner. And when we see that sin in our lives, when we realize... The, the, the evil desires and passions that still dwell there, we are to crucify them, to put them to death. Um, also, Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to turn there to read that verse, talks about this as well. Um, I'll read several verses out of there. And it seems like they were dealing with um, maybe the same problem here that the Galatians had. Paul says to them, "In, "...in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And he goes on to say that, then, judge no, so, that, so let no one judge you in your food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So he's saying some of these things in the Old Testament law were there to, to portray something as, as, a, um, as, as a shadow of the things to come, to point to something, a spiritual truth that by Jesus Christ coming then became um, real to us. <clears throat> also in, in verses in this passage here, we, we notice how that, I'm going back to, to Galatians now. Living in the Spirit is synonymous with crucifying the flesh. We sometimes, um, well, we had the discussion in discipleship class what does it mean to live in the Spirit? What does that all include? To, to have the Spirit in your life, the evidence of the Spirit. Um, the Spirit, being Spirit filled or having the Spirit living within you is multi dimensional. So sometimes we think we can look at the book of Acts and we look at Pentecost there when the Spirit came and some of the results of that, and we see the apostles being very zealous in their preaching and teaching and confronting people about their need for Christ. We see miracles taking place and some supernatural things that happened in the early days of the church there. They were Spirit-filled. However, that's one dimension of the Spirit. And only one dimension. But as I said, the Spirit is multi dimensional. So there's, there's more that Scripture teaches us that, that is, should be evident in our lives if we are filled with the Spirit. Um, the Spirit is our teacher, He leads us into truth. So what, what He says will line up with God's Word because that is truth. He will convict us of sin, He convicts the world of sin. He's a comforter reminding us of, of the promises of God and what he has done for us. And, and the list could go on. So let's not get distracted by one dimension of the Spirit, but remember that there's a, a great work that he is doing, multi-dimensional. Um, and here, in this passage, it is evident that living in the Spirit is synonymous with crucifying the flesh, putting to death the sin that we find in our lives. Jesus taught this principle as well in Matthew, remember where he talks about if your hand or your foot is causing you to sin, you are to cut it off. And it is better to live life without that hand or foot than to be condemned by the sin. This is the idea of, of personal cross-bearing. Let's go on now into uh, beginning in the last verse of 5, and I'll read through chapter 6, verse 6. This section I have entitled The Responsibility of the Spiritual. So we've looked at the Spirit as the answer to the flesh problem, and now, having accepted the Spirit, um, allowing Him to work in our lives, we are the spiritual. That's what I'm referring to as the spiritual. So here we're going to look at the responsibilities of the spiritual. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, and bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load." Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. So now he, he begins by give, he, he begins in this section by giving a warning about the, the potential to, as we um, are filled with the Spirit and live in the spirit and overcome sin, um, the, the, the temptation for the spiritual to become proud of their spiritualness it's a warning about pride and and attempting to um, outdo each other. The Pharisees were probably a an example of this. Um, they thought of themselves as very spiritual and they became quite proud of that level of spirituality that they had attained and and they would it seems like there was some competition going on there sometimes to see how spiritual they could be and then also provoking others um, being hard on those who they perceive as not as spiritual. Um, So he gives us a warning about that, that we're not to become proudful of our spirituality, of the work the Spirit is doing in our lives. Rather, he says, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, if we see another brother or sister who is being burdened down by by sin, that we're to to stoop down and help them, rather than condemn them, rather than, than look at ourselves as, well, too bad they're not up here, you know where I am and having victory over this. Instead, we're to to offer them help in their um, to carry their burden. Now, if you have the old King James, you notice that he uses that word burden twice here in verse two and in verse five, and it can seem like like it's saying two different things. We're to bear one another's burdens, and then we're to bear our own burden. But the, the, King James, or the New King James that I have actually uses the word load in verse 5 instead of burden. And if you look in the Greek, it, it does have a different meaning. It's two different words. Um, the first one in verse 2 is the idea of a, um, a burden that is weighing us down. that something that's more than we can carry. Um, it uses the word overtaken there in verse 1. If you see a brother who is overtaken in a trespass, one who has a burden that is more than he can carry. And then in verse 5, the meaning is, is that of a, well, it literally would be like, like a cargo, like the load a ship is carrying, the cargo a ship is carrying, a load that you have that you're responsible to carry. So we have, we have burdens that, that weigh us down, that are more than what we can bear, that we need help with. And we have burdens or responsibilities or a load that we are called to carry, even though it's work. That's for us to do. So there's just um, keep that in mind, that there's two different meanings there. So instead of becoming proud, we are to stoop down and help each other. When you see we have a brother or sister who has a burden that they cannot carry on their own. This is how we fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 4 and 5, um, let each one examine his own work. This is speaking of self-examination. It means comparing my life to the Word of God and to the life of Jesus Christ and to what His Spirit is calling me to do. Comparing my life to and then taking responsibility for discrepancies that we may see. Each one examines his own work. What am I doing? Is my life reflecting, um, is my life showing the fruit of the Spirit? And And then we can rejoice in ourselves. We don't need to compare ourselves with others, but we can feel good about where we're at if our life is lining up with God's Word. We don't have to compare others to make ourselves, compare with others to make ourselves feel better. For each one shall bear his own load. We all have a responsibility, a, a work to do, to, to be, um, like I said earlier, that executioner that crucifies the sin. Um, we have a responsibility to, to love each other. And that sometimes is a, a burden. It's, it's work. It's a load that we as Christians are called to carry. We are responsible for that. Let him who is taught in the word sharing all good things with him who teaches. This is a concept that is taught numerous times in Scripture and a little awkward for us pastors and teachers to teach on. But um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. You know what it's saying. You know what it means the one who is taught is to share with the one who puts the work into teaching, and this really ties in with with what he 's saying previous to this that there are those who have burdens that are more than they can carry, and there are those who have a responsibility a, a load that they are to carry um, they are to carry themselves. It, it is their responsibility they do not have they cannot pass that on to others so those who teach. Um, there is those in the church who are called to teach, who have a responsibility to teach, and it's more work than what the one who's sitting there listening. But we are called to do that. Um, let's move on then to the next section I'm going to look at is verses 7 through 10, the work of the spiritual. And this is looking at the law of sowing and reaping. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows in his flesh will of the flesh Reap corruption, but he who sows in the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We may at times get tired in this work of crucifying the flesh and bearing each other's burdens. Paul recognizes that this is tiring work. Paul was familiar, very familiar, I think, with that work. He says we are to seize the opportunities to plant seeds and expect a harvest. In this work of of living, um, of walking with the Spirit and living in the Spirit, There's times when it becomes tiring, and and I like this comparison he makes here of that of a farmer sowing, or a gardener, sowing seed and then reaping a harvest. So we are in a time, we, we could say we are in the springtime now or in the summer. You know how it works with a farmer. He puts a lot of time and money into preparing the soil, uh, putting fertilizer in if you 're a farmer, you know those are some of your biggest bills, your seed bill and your fertilizer bill and your fuel bill for your tractors as you run and and prepare that ground so you 're putting a lot investing a lot of money in this and putting a lot of time into it and when you 're done planting, there 's nothing really nothing there to show for there's there 's no immediate reward and you go through the summer in, in the summer phase there 's still no, there 's still no reward there 's still no check there for you. To pay off that seed bill. You're waiting. And he says that's a little how it is in our Christian lives. We have a time to, to sow that seed. Uh, we expect a harvest, but it's work, and it's requiring a lot of us, and it may be discouraging because you don't see any fruit right now of the, from the seeds that you have planted. But he's reminding us, that in due season, we will have a reward. And that is, the harvest is what we are looking forward to. Those rewards are not all on this earth here. We don't always see the full reward. So his encouragement is, don't get weary, don't get tired of this work of walking with the Spirit. Anticipate a reward when the harvest comes. And lastly, he's Talking in this last section about the the boast of the spiritual. Or the glory is the word that the King James uses. I'll read verse 11 to the end. See with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these will compel you to be circumcised. Only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on let no one trouble you. Trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Um, as I had mentioned earlier, an interesting note about this book of Galatians, this letter he wrote to them, is that he really does not commend them for anything. He's being pretty hard on them. He's he's being pretty stern and adamant that they have a problem here that needs to be addressed. And he doesn't really um, this is probably the closest he gets to giving them any um, anything real positive here is that he says he closes out with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit. Um, Paul chose to use some rather strong language throughout this letter, and we see it again here in verse fourteen where he says, "God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ there is there's nothing. Paul is saying there's nothing in the work that I do, in the, 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 the way that the laws that I follow or the work that I do, um, that's nothing to be proud of, that's nothing to glory in. And I cannot boast in that, only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only because of what Jesus Christ have done, has done that this work can be um, um, produced by my life. Verse 11, um, just a, a little bit of a note on that and what he's trying to say there. And, and as I looked at several different commentators, they, they really don't all agree uh, on what Paul is trying to say. And, and it can be a little confusing. Or uh, yeah, But I, I think my conclusion in having studied this, this book and in seeing kind of the, the tone of the book, um, I think that what he's probably saying is, he may have written a part of this with his own handwriting. Oftentimes, Paul had other people writing for him, and they were probably people who were maybe more gifted in writing than he was. This was, of course, before any computers or typewriters or anything like that. But um, you'll notice in Paul's letters in, in 1 Corinthians, in, in 2 Thessalonians, and in Colossians, he ends all those books with some kind of comment that, okay, this, I'm writing this with my own handwriting now. And it, I think it was Paul's way of kind of authenticating that this letter was truly from him. Uh, maybe some of these churches recognized his handwriting. And it was kind of a personal, personal note um, to close out his letter. And that may be what he's doing here, or he may be referring to just his handwriting in general throughout the letter, assuming you know, maybe he did write it all himself. We don't know that for sure. But he says, see with what large letters I've written to you. We, we've we seen how Paul um, really um, used some strong language, and he was he was a little worked up, I think, about what was going on here in this church. So it's possible that he used some large letters for emphasis, some kind of like we use bold print sometimes, something like that. He's just pointing out to them, I, I, am, I am determined to get this point across to you. I want you to take this seriously. And and he goes on then to, in, in verses 12 through 17, to just kind of re-emphasize what he was saying throughout this, this letter to them. There's an irony I see here in verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these will compel you to be circumcised. So, Paul is saying that this perverted gospel that, that you're falling for, um, the true gospel says that we are to crucify ourselves. We are to take up the cross and follow Christ. Crucify those sinful desires. These false teachers are, instead of crucifying the flesh, are putting it on display. They want you to look good so that they can take that credit for themselves. What should be crucified, they desire to be put on display. And rather than to take up the cross, they're seeking to avoid it. They don't want to suffer because of the cross. They're seeking to avoid the cross instead of taking it up. And then he closes this with one rule for them. As many as walk according to this rule, verse 16. And I think that's referring back to 15 In Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. The, The one rule for them is that they need to become a new creation in Christ. This was the one rule for them, that they walk according to this rule, and then he gives them a blessing if they do that. A new creation in Christ is where it needs to start, and that is where the fruit then comes out of. He concludes with, now let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And I think Paul is probably referring to the physical scars that he bore because of his commitment to Christ and because of his willingness to live for him rather than by the law. The persecution at that time came from largely from the religious people who, who felt that... Um, The law still needed to be followed, and and Paul had scars. It tells us elsewhere that he was beaten and stoned on several occasions. He says, these are the scars. These are the physical scars that I bear. And the question for us is, what are the marks of a true believer? Is there evidence in our lives of being a true believer? We may not have scars from being beaten because of what we believe, but are there marks Of a true believer, of one who follows the pure, true gospel? Is there evidence in your life of a new creation? Or are you depending on these symbols, these outward things to make you look righteous? That's the challenge I think that that we really are left with as we we look at this book. Um, what does the pure gospel look like in your life? Is there has there been a change? Are you a new creation? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been able to study this book. Thank you again for the privilege of, of carrying your word with us, of bringing it here, of opening it and studying it. And thank you for your spirit that allows us to, um, to understand the truth and leads us into that truth, giving us understanding as we need it. We, we look to you to continue to give us wisdom for how we should live. Thank you for the gospel, the good news, the news of salvation, that you have died on the cross, and because of that, um, we are no longer condemned in sin if we come to you and accept your sacrifice. Help us to be faithful, to bear your fruit in the world around us, that we may be a shining light for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Ken, do you have a closing song? Yeah, and there's <clears throat>